her death was what is what started my awakening process where I started asking myself some pretty profound questions like, are you happy? You know, like the, the, the world says you should be happy. You have a massive house, you have, you know, custom suits and a gold Rolex and uh, Aston Martin and, you know, all the, all the stuff. And I was afraid of that answer, quite frankly, man. I was really afraid of that answer because I knew, I knew like, I knew what the answer was. I was just too afraid to, to, to like say it. My name is Ronan Levy, and you're listening to the Non-Ordinary Podcast, my sometimes serious, sometimes not so serious podcast exploring the most interesting questions in life. One of the questions I've been dealing with lately has been just what to make of this conversation you're about to listen to with Danny Morrell. Here's a guy who has made a lot of money, has a big following, and was generous enough to give me an hour of his time in response to a cold email I had sent to his people. And there are many things I love about what he shares. I love the fact that he has a rags to riches to transcendence story where he finds out that riches, to paraphrase Dr. Dre, ain't shit. At least they certainly don't give you what you hope they'll give you, an experience I know firsthand on some level. And I think it's amazing that he's willing to be so candid about it and has dedicated his life to helping people find a higher purpose or calling. He even shares a good couple nuggets of wisdom with me. At the same time, and I'm sure you can hear this in my tone and line of questioning at various points, I have a hard time accepting some of what Danny is sharing at face value. Like the time I ate discount sushi at Sushi on Bloor, something just doesn't sit right. And as I'm trying to practice radical honesty right now, something I think Danny would appreciate, my radically honest opinion is that I really don't know what to make of this conversation. I'd love to know what you think of this conversation and if you share my experience or think that maybe I'm just being an egotistic jerk. Feel free to send me an email, ronan.levy at gmail.com with your thoughts. And as always, if you could please rate and review this podcast on Apple and Spotify and subscribe, I'd be grateful. Thanks for listening. You ready? I'm always ready, man. Fire away and uh, let's, let's share love. Let's share truth. All right, let's do it. So I'm, I got a, I, I wrote a, a little note to kind of lead us in. So for everybody who's tuning in live, uh, I was just giving Danny some background on this conversation and I'm going to give it to you now. So I'm going to start by just reading my notes and saying, Danny, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. But to give you a bit, brief background of what I'm currently exploring with the podcast, it's kind of a professional and personal conversation. Professionally, I've been a lawyer and an entrepreneur for close to 20 years now. Uh, even just saying that makes me barf a little bit in my mouth. 20 years is a long time to be doing this kind of stuff. And though I've had some successes, my latest entrepreneurial pursuit, a company called Field Trip, which was very active in bringing psychedelic assisted therapies to the mainstream, which I think is something you're interested in talking about as well. So we can also sure. do a nerd out on talking about psychedelics. Um, doing that work, almost honestly, it almost felt like a dream come true to me. It had all the elements that I had been looking for in my professional pursuit. It was kind of hot and sexy. It was a fun topic. It had created impact. It so deeply intersected with my interests and my passions. And more than anything, I knew we, I wasn't the only one starting field trip, uh, or at least I was made for making this happen. Like it felt like this was it. This was the culminating moment. And, and four and a half years from the day that it started, it crashed and burned and we filed for restructuring um, in March. And, and that's a story from starting 
you know, in the, in the small office, taking it all the way to listing on the NASDAQ, being list, listed on the global select on the NASDAQ, all the way back to the other side. Um, and we filed for restructuring in March, and that's when my field trip with Field Trip came to an end. Uh, this naturally sent me on a journey whereby I've been reevaluating notions of worth, self-worth, success, meaning, and meaning. And as a man, it's also deeply intersected with notions of masculinity, which you nicely pointed out. So when I saw your post from about five weeks or so talking about the role of a man and a woman, I, I just had to reach out and have this conversation with you because I'm interested not only in conversations about masculinity and all that kind of stuff, but I love your reflections. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You've gone through the highs and lows as well. So I'm always looking for advice and feedback from people who've gone through it so I can learn um, uh, as I continue on my journey. But before we dive uh, into your post and that conversation, I'd love to hear your story, your journey to becoming Danny Morale, life coach and spiritual leader to millions. I know it's on the website a little bit, but let's dive into that first. And we can you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's so interesting. If I, if I answer that, first off, thanks for having me. If I answer that truthfully, the minute anyone tries to, uh, I know that we all as human beings want to categorize like what we do. Uh, but whenever I yep. hear that, like life coach, I cringe. I'm like, and and then whenever I hear like spiritual leader, I cringe uh, because I feel like there's so much separation and so much ego in giving ourselves like an identity, you know, um, yep. truthfully, even in our names, even in all of us having a name, there is separation in all of that. And my life's work is all about helping people to unravel all of the separation that keeps us from our highest self and our truth. Um, just because that was the journey that I went on. And when I finally came to my knees in complete humility, by the way, complete humility for, for everything that my mind tried to tell me I was, or that I needed in order to find love and acceptance. Um, I, whatever the world was selling, I was buying, you know, and I say this in complete humility. When I when I finally unraveled all of that and I reconnected to my heart, the, the only thing I could think of was, oh my God, how many human beings out there are living disconnected from their hearts? And that's when I started my journey. And um I just started I just started helping people, whoever would listen. Uh you know, I, I had uh, just sold my business, which there was failure in that, if you want to ask me about that as well. Uh, and yeah. um, I, I was just committed, man. I was just committed to helping people find this thing that I had found. And so, and so, yeah, so that's, that's me in a nutshell, man. Uh, I'm just me doing me. Well, I mean, that's thank it. I like that. Me doing me. That's that's exactly what it should be. Um, well, let's 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 back up because for your audience, they probably know the story and know your story. For my audience, they don't. So okay, sure. From from what I've read, you know, you're a kid, you're growing up. Um, I think your parents were Dominican and uh, Ecuadorian. Was that right? Dominican that and Ecuadorian. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and. You know, you have a childhood, it's going okay. And then at 13, your parents split up. Um, yeah. Before we go to that moment, tell me about growing up to 13. What was life like? Like, who were you at from zero to 13? How would you define yourself? Yeah, from zero to 13, you know what comes up, man? Um, I was a really chubby kid uh, who was okay. very sheltered. 
my parents were always afraid of letting us like go out and like play and explore. Um, when you live in New York City or grow up in New York City, you live in buildings. So it's not like you can walk out into your front yard or something, you know. Um, so you got to go down an elevator and there's crackheads in, 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 in the elevator and there's, quite frankly, urine in the elevator. And there's, there's just the kind of thing, a lot of things you have to deal with when you live in. What I didn't realize was the, the projects in New York City, you know. And so... Um, and so, yeah, so I, I feel like we were very sheltered. And yet I do remember times where we get to like run around and like get into mischief. I don't know, man. Life was good. I went to Catholic school, private school. And okay. I could always remember my parents fighting over money, quite frankly. Um, right. And the story that I got when they decided to divorce was that they divorced because of money, because my dad made money, but lent it all to his family. And to this day, it's interesting, but one of my principles in life, I do not let anyone borrow money. And as a result, no one ever asks me for it. Um, it's just nothing. Right. It's just something that I don't attract because we attract based off of our energy. And so um, my dad obviously had some sort of a subconscious belief with money, which he does. And therefore, the universe will reward you with ways to help take your money from you. Uh, and so, um, I just decided like, as I was growing up and I saw them divorce and I saw the pain of that. And I saw my mom take myself and my two siblings all the way to California. And I remember feeling all of those emotions and becoming the man of the house. I remember thinking like, I'm not going to have issues with money. Like if, if, if these rich people on the TV don't have issues with money, then I'm not going to have issues with money. And I think that's what started my entrepreneurial career, quite frankly. Um, a career that led me to build a, a pretty big real estate office. We had about 400 agents okay. working for us, 30 to 40 staff, a billion in sales, 40 million in annual revenue. Uh, and then I sold it because I realized I was miserable. I realized I was really unhappy. I was probably 40 to 50 pounds heavier than I am right now. Um, I was deeply disconnected from, from, from the concept of God because the, 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 the church or the concept that the church portrays as God, uh, essentially I, I saw my mom wither away from cancer and that, and that broke my heart and mm -hmm. God never came to help her. Uh, and I wanted answers, man. And I wanted answers now and nothing that yeah. any preacher or any book was sharing with me resonated with truth of what I was seeing and experiencing. And that's when I started my spiritual journey, man. And I, I went pretty deep with it. Well, I definitely want to get into that. But before we go there, I'm curious to know your story. Why have you speak up a little bit, but because I'm having a hard time hearing you. Oh, let me see. Let me try and move the mic up. Does that work any better? Is that any Lots better? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, your story in many ways mimics mine. I didn't grow up in New York City. I didn't grow up in the projects by any stretch of the imagination, but going back to the roots of my parents' divorce, it was fundamentally about money. My dad made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, made a lot of money, lost a lot of money. My grandfather was wealthy. And I think my parents' divorce in many ways was precipitated by the fact that my dad was in a starting off spot uh my grandfather offered to bail him out uh and then at the last minute grandfather my grandfather walked away and said no grandfather on father's side or on mother's my side? grandfather on my mom's side 
Yeah. So your my, father, my maternal was, grandfather, yeah, offered so to bail me. Your father was trying to live under and live up to the pressure um, that your 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 mom's dad subconsciously had on him because he was trying to perform and provide the same way that your grandfather was able to provide for your mom. That's a lot of pressure. You know, I I don't know. I can't say exactly what the dynamics were. Certainly, if that was the case, that would be a lot of pressure. I think my dad was motivated by his own purposes to, you know, seek his financial dreams. Uh, I think he was driven by a lot of ego and and sense of self-worth being attached by financial wealth. Um, and so, you know, the, the fallout, the the rupture that happened when there was supposed to be the bailout and didn't happen, um, you know, led to a lot of strife and ultimately divorce and a pretty spectacular divorce, which I don't need to belabor because many people have heard it before, but just to say, suffice to say it involved the FBI and George Bush Jr. at various points. It was, it was quite spectacular in many ways. Um, so a lot of your story speaks to me and, and how it attaches, you know, kind of perverse awareness about the power and implications and value of money uh, and what yeah. money means, right? Because I've watched whole parts of my family get blown up over money, which seems insane, right? It's like money is just a purpose. It's a tool. It's an energy to acquire things that by and large don't really matter, right? Like at the end of the day, the stuff you buy provides you with joy for a few minutes and then it just becomes an object. Um, but I'm curious to know, uh, it sounded like your dad was very generous with your family or was it just reckless or was he taken advantage of? Like why, why was that a source of friction? Cause it sounds like a lot of generosity when you talk about it. But I don't think that's general. I think, I don't think that's generosity because for, if, for you to be generous, you first have to be generous to yourself. And I think that the main issue was that my father, pardon me. Uh, the main issue was that no my father wasn't, he didn't have any boundaries, you know? And so as a result of him not having any boundaries, he was very easily taken advantage of. And quite frankly, um, underneath that, what could be seen as generosity, you know, the ego plays tricks on us, you know, it really does. And so my father was probably trying to people please and be accepted and be loved right. and be looked up for to and admired. And, and, and all of that is masked under this theme of generosity, right? Um, so, yeah, so I don't think it was that. I don't think it was that at all because when you're generous, you have something to be generous from so that it doesn't take or rob from you so that you're giving from a space of, you know, abundance. Um, so, yeah, right. that's, that's, what, that's what came up when, when you just asked me that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a fair response. I never thought about that. So if I'm understanding correctly, the notion of generosity has to be grounded in a notion of having abundance, having something to give. And, and if it's not coming from, if it's coming from a place of lack and motivated by fear of, if I don't provide, if I don't help, then, you know, these people aren't going to love me. They're not my family, whatever, whatever words you want to attach to that. Sure. It's, it's not true generosity. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, how can you be generous to another if it's going to hurt you? Then that then there there's there's something underneath that. You know, there's something underneath that. Um in order for us to truly love another, we first have to love ourselves. So yeah. Yeah. 
No, that, that's interesting. I mean, it, it flies in the face of most conventional notions, particularly of Christianity and, and martyrhood, right? Which is oh, that's a know, whole number. God gave His only begotten Son. Yeah, that didn't that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, so your parents split up at thirteen. But, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> that gets, yeah. Oh, no, listen, listen, I, I love rabbit holes. That's the purpose of long form content is we can go down rabbit holes. So if there's anything you want to say there, feel free. If it's a topic you don't want to explore, then we don't have to. Nah, you know, pe- people are on their own journey and I, just like I was at, at one point in time, but, um, but, but, but truly, truly think of it, Tr- truly think about it. Ram Das has this great quote and he says, um, the only thing you could really do for someone else is to work on yourself. And the only thing yeah. that someone else could ever really do for you is to work on themselves. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of depth in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's entirely fair. Um, okay. So you're, you're 13 and your parents split up. And uh, it sounds like you took some pretty, I'll say, severe lessons uh, away from that, particularly around financial awareness. but. It, it was it was the the fact that your father kept giving money to your family or his family that was a source of the primary was the primary source of the friction is that is that accurate at least that's what i was told yeah right okay and what was it like do you do you remember that time you know i don't remember my parents splitting up i was too young and and so like a lot of the stuff i unpack from it i've unpacked subsequently being like oh shit now i see how that affected me yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, thanks to plant medicine, I've, I've gone pretty deep into all of it. Um, I'm at peace with all of it. I understand it was part of my perfect journey to get me to where I am today. Um, yeah, it, 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 I, all I could vividly remember was a moment where my father came to the window as we were about to leave basically to 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 go live in California and I like I had a German shepherd next to me, my German shepherd and I, I remember sticking the German shepherd up to the window in a sign of like not only defiance, but like I was now gonna protect my mom and my my two little brothers, you know, and I, I took that role. Oh, I shit. took that role at thirteen. I remember when we got to California, in California there's no subways. So my mom had to learn how to drive. And don't ask me why I convinced her to buy a stick shift car, which she didn't know how to drive. So I learned how to drive and I drove us around illegally at the age of 13. Um, Oh, wow. So, yeah. Do you still carry pieces of that protector instinct with you to this day? Because like, I know that's a... behavior that a lot of kids who go through divorce or, you know, even if it's not divorce where parental relationships are unstable that, um, you know, the, the eldest or the, some of the children, particularly the male children either are asked explicitly or maybe in some sort of deeper level psychological contract, take on that responsibility to be the provider. Um, you know, how is that? How how do you see that now? Here's how I'll answer that. We just had a baby, right? We just right. had a baby, and um, thank you, uh, a beautiful little girl. And Jen is actually downstairs taking care of the baby. You know, um, 
Jen, prior to meeting me, was highly in her masculine energy. You know, she was her own provider, her own protector. Um, and then when she met me, um, that all shifted. And it was like this beautiful dance of healing where each of us learned um, how to be in our truest essence, um, my masculine and of course my feminine energy, but her feminine and of her, of course, her masculine energy. And, and the reason why I answer this is because in this example, in the example of creating life, right? You know, if, if, if you're a parent or if you're out there listening and you've ever had a child, you will remember that as a man, as much as yes, you participate and you help and you bottle feed and you, you do everything for that baby, that baby craves its mother and that baby craves its mother's milk. And that baby is literally the sustenance of that child in the first year or so that it's alive is the mother, right? Mm -hmm. It literally came from the mother and the mother feeds and sustains it. And so when you mention words like protector and provider, um, I mean, I, 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 that is the role of the masculine, you know, the, the role of the masculine is to protect the heart and all of us have a masculine and a feminine within us. And all of us have ways in which we should and could be protecting our own heart. Some of them are based off of pain and fear. And then the more and more that we uh, grow and the more and more that we unravel in terms of parts of us the more and more that we start to become a protector and a provider from love, from the energy of love, right? So the more and more that I love Jen, the more and more that I want to protect and I want to provide so that she can step into this new role in her life, being a mother with as much peace and ease as possible. And the more and more that I love my daughter, um, Selena, the more and more that I want to provide and protect for her so that she can form that bond with her mother, right? The same way that she gets to form that bond with me in our special moments as well. But when I think of those two words, um, I think of them from the perspective of, you know, now, um, that is the function of the masculine and that is to protect the heart. Right. There's a, there's a lot to explore there. Um, and, and we'll come back to it. Is, is Selena your first daughter? Is your first child? My first daughter, my fourth child. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Okay. So you've got, you've got a big brood around you. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Um, just because my brain works fairly chronologically, I'd love to continue to ex explore. So 13 parents split up, you moved to California and, and you made the decision from what I've read that you wanted to buy a house, I guess, uh, for your, your mother and your brothers and you achieved that by the age of 21. Do I have that correct? Yeah, I remember. How the hell did you, how the hell did you achieve that by 21, man? That's impressive. I'd love to know what the, what, what you put your shoulder into. Yeah, but you know what, man? It's the same way we all do anything is we decide. We're, we're the ones creating it all, you know? And so I, I could just vividly remember I was 18 years old. And I like, I, I, it was like the day after graduation. And I was laying in bed 
And I just thought to myself, like, what do I do now? Like, if I go get a job, nothing wrong with getting a job, but if I go get a job right now, the likelihood of us ever getting out of this shithole apartment and this ghetto neighborhood that we're in, it's not going to happen. So I said, I could go start a business. I don't know how to start a business. I don't know. Nobody in my family is a business owner. As a matter of fact, if they ever tried it, they failed at it. And because the consciousness of money in my family at the time was like very, very low. But I, but I said, listen, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy my mom and us a house by the time I'm 21 years old. And I'm going to move us out of there. And there's something that happens that when you decide what you want in your life, right? The universe and life itself, which is you, starts to align and orchestrate all of the right people, all the right circumstances, all of the right situations for you to find your way to what it is that you want. As long as you believe that you are what you want and there's nothing keeping you from it, you know, scratch that as long as you know. So there has to be this inner sense of knowing that you're the one guiding the ship, right? And so sure enough, like I remember going to a Little League baseball game at the time my little brother was in Little League and the dad saw that I was very responsible and he was going to Mexico and he had two tortilla delivery trucks and um, he he needed somebody to watch one of the trucks and the routes and his house. Perfect stranger. He's like, listen, man, I, I, I've just known you here from this team. You seem like a good kid. You seem responsible. How about you take my route um, and whatever it makes, just pay me 20%, you know, and then you keep the rest of the money and also, also house sit for me. So I spent like a month in the route with the tortilla route, house sitting. And um, that was my first little business, quite frankly. And then after that, um, okay. I, I went to a um, like a job fair or a career fair. And there was a real estate agent there and he had pictures on this board with prices. I remember houses were like $85,000 back then, you know, and I would just ask questions and, and, and you know, well, how, how much do I need as a down payment? He told me 2,400 bucks. Oh my God, that's a lot of money. 2,400 bucks. Okay. 2,400 bucks. So I just, you know, wrote it down. I made a little goal, right? 2,400 bucks. And, and then I asked him the magic question. I said, by the way, is there any money in real estate? He says, yeah, there is. And at the time I was working six days a week. And the other question I asked him, by the way, which is the ego question, I said, is there any room for somebody like me to get in it? Because the ego always wants to try to keep you away from what it is that you truly want to have in life. That's one of its main focuses at the, at the beginning, at least. And he says, yeah, there's plenty of room. And then I, guess I, I said, I'll tell you what, um, you know, I, I work six days a week right now. Um, Sundays I have off. Put me to work on Sundays for you. I'll do whatever you want. Don't pay me any money. Just teach me. Just teach me the ropes. I was hungry, man. I wanted to learn. And that's how I learned about real estate. Yeah. 60 days later, I got my real estate license. My first year, I think I made $80,000 at like 19 years old. Second year, I made $110,000, nice. the highest earner in my family. I worked seven days a week, but I made it happen. And I bought my house, my mama house by the time I was 21 years old. Sight unseen. I didn't see it. I just did the math. I, I knew what comparables were. I think I, it was listed for like 70. I knew it was worth 110 or so. And uh, and I, I, I wrote an offer for 75 because I wanted it. And we got it. That was it. 
It's amazing to think that you could buy a house for $75,000 at one point, <laughs> not too long ago these days. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, again, a lot of your story resonates with me because I remember lying on the couch. Now, it wasn't nearly as challenging circumstances as you had, so I don't want to compare them, but there are analogies, which was um, before becoming an entrepreneur as a lawyer, I practiced corporate and securities law and I hated my life, you know, in many ways it, it was awful. Um, and I remember sitting on the couch one day and I was watching the MTV music awards on TV and I saw, uh, Kanye, who was then Kanye West. Now I don't know what his name is, but we'll call him Yeezy, um, partying. And I remember having this thought being like, as much as the celebrities are partying right now, I bet all like the bankers and the lawyers and all the other people behind the scenes are partying way harder than Kanye is right now. And I'm like, I want that in my life. I'd grown up playing music terribly. Admittedly, I always wanted to be a rock star. And I just remember sitting on the couch being like, I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to find my way into the entertainment industry. So I picked up, I think it was a BlackBerry at the time and emailed everybody I knew who was even remotely connected to the entertainment industry. And lo and behold, nothing came of it. And then, out of the blue, three months later, uh, there was a job posting work for MTV Canada at the time because I'm based in Toronto. Uh, and it just so happened that the recruiter who had placed me into the job that I was in at that time, which was being a lawyer for a pharmaceutical company, was the same person who was representing that MTV Canada gig. And I had a very good rapport with her. And lo and behold, you know, one thing that's the next. And I had a job at MTV and I was like, oh shit, when you put your mind to things, things that's actually it. happen. When you dedicate that's yourself it. fully, boom. You know, it's again, it's, I don't, I don't mean to at all compare it to where you were, but it was my first taste of like, oh shit, no, there, there is truth to that. Did you have a sense of that when you were going through that? Um, when you're 18, 19, 20, I, uh, I or did, did you just like, I'm just putting my head down and plowing through? That's it, man. That's it. And you know where all of that started, to be honest with you, it started with me driving at 13. I didn't know how I was going to do that but I did it. Right. And then I was on the wrestling team and I wanted to win a certain amount of matches. And I, I just, I just, I guess I just instinctively just like wanted something. And then I was willing to sacrifice to make it happen. You know? Right. So let's fast forward a bit. You've now bought your mama house. You started your real estate career. You've grown your real estate business to, sorry, what was the number you said? What was the annual revenue? It, it was 1 billion in annual sales. Revenue was 38, 40 million, something like that. Wow. Still a massive business. Um, and how long was that? When, when did you kind of wake up to say like, I'm pretty miserable. Take me through that kind of awareness. I assume it wasn't overnight. Maybe it was overnight, but uh, take me through that. Nothing happened until my mom died. And and, and this was at the right. peak of our business. Um, you know, I, How I long believe ago was this, by the way? Was, my mom passed six, seven years ago, something like that. Six, six years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, I believe many of us have soul contracts. Um, I definitely had a soul contract with my mom. Her her death was what is what started my awakening process where I started asking myself some pretty profound questions like are you happy? You know, like the 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 world says you should be happy. You have a massive house, you have, you know, custom suits and a gold Rolex and uh, Aston Martin and you know all the all the stuff. 
you know, beautiful wife at the time, three boys, but are you happy? And I was afraid of that answer, quite frankly, man. I was really afraid of that answer yeah. because I knew, I knew like, I knew what the answer was. I was just too afraid to, to, to like say it. And the truth is I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. And the second thing, and, and this is my journey, but nothing in church made sense to me anymore. Nothing made sense right. to me. I, I would sit there and I would look at like church and I would, I saw like a show. Like I saw a, a program basically, like from the first song to the last song to to the announcements to so that I, I could I could like I could I could like regurgitate the, the show. I could reg I I could know yeah. there was gonna be a happy song and then a sad song and then the and then the hands raised and then and I was like and I would just look around like what the hell's going what what what's going on? Like what am I it's like I was starting to see what I feel people have a difficult time seeing. I was starting to pierce the veil past the 3D world, right? Like in the movie, The Matrix, like take the red pill. I was starting to yeah. like take the red pill without understanding and I was like in that process. And, and I'll tell you, the biggest change happened was, you know, I, I, I bring up church because it was a massive part of my life. I was baptizing people. I was okay. going to Bible se sem seminary, doing the whole thing. And at one point in time, I thought like I'm meant to be a pastor. True story. That's that, that's how deep I was in it. Hmm. And as a result, man, is like I I I was a, I was a good boy, and I did what I was told, and I believed what I was told to believe. So, like, whenever anybody would mention like ayahuasca or something like that, it was like that's the devil, like that is that evil stuff, right? right. Witchcraft or whatever. And then, sure enough, when the by the time my mom died, I thought to myself. I'm going nowhere fast because everything that I thought was true is not true to me anymore. And none of this is making sense. I'm obviously not happy. And I saw a friend of mine, his, his name is actually Gerard Adams. He's a, he's a great guy on social media. And um, I saw him, I saw him in his stories and he had some weird pain on his face and he was running around dancing and he had a big smile on his face. And I was like, I know Gerard and that's not his normal smile. So like a month later, I hit him up and I go, what was that all about? All that weird jungle shit you were doing? He's like, I did ayahuasca. And I, I kid you not, man, something inside of me said, I'm in. I don't even think I asked any questions. Right. I think I literally just said the words, I'm in. Where do I go? <laughs> the rest is history. Can can we explore that history? Um, because yeah. uh, obviously that's a, an area of particular interest to me. And uh, over the last year, it's funny as you were saying that, because over the last couple of years, we were putting together a documentary where I threw myself into the jungle, uh, not ayahuasca specifically, uh, and uh, had a whole bunch of psychedelic experience and documented it so people could see the real of it. Um, because you only see really a lot of the science these days when you talk about the, the what's going on with psychedelics. Um, so I, I just... Uh, I've had that moment of running around in a jungle, uh, looking yep. kind of crazed, but uh, in in a state of bliss and and ecstasy. So I know exactly what's what's happening. So you go. So was your first experience with ayahuasca? Did you head to Peru or, or Costa Rica or, or I went to Costa Rica. that? I went to Costa Rica. Okay, that was the first experience, and um, that first ceremony was um, scariest thing of my life. And I want to say this yeah. to anybody who has been thinking about sitting with the medicine, that was because 
I was afraid to let go of control. And she was mm-hmm. trying to teach me. She was, she was showing me what that energy was doing in my life, basically, you know? And, um, and, um, yeah. So I, 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 once I finally was able to let go of, I was, I was mad. I was afraid. And, uh, the shaman told me, he says, he says, Danny, here's, here's what I can tell you. Cause I wasn't going to do the second or the third ceremony. I was like, I'm out. I'm not doing that right. shit. Right. Yeah. He said, uh, he said, he said, do you know what the second scariest thing in the world to do is? I, I said, what? He says, to do ayahuasca for the first time. And I go, hmm. He goes, you know okay. what the scariest thing in the world is? And I said, what's that? He said, to do it again after your first time was the scariest time of your life. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I have, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to do it. Sure enough, it was wonderful. The best experience of my life to the point that I remember at the end, I was dancing and smiling and I was like, I want more. I want more. And I came back, you know, I sat with Aya another 11 times or so. And, um, and then I sat with mushrooms another eight or nine times. And now I'm in a place in my journey where life itself is the medicine, you know, life itself is presenting me with healing. And I, I don't feel called to sit with the medicine right now anymore. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Along the line, um, where did you, you made a comment before that you said, you know, your ego wants to keep you away, I think, from the things you want. And, and it's interesting because I've always, well, not always, I understand that the ego is what gives us a sense of identity, right? Like the, the history of humanity has been the history of the ego, which is identity and separation. I am Ronan, you are Danny. We're both humans, but we're separate humans, right? And it feels like the next evolution is not losing our identity because there's something specific about this journey for me and for you. Um, but finding what uh, is called enchantment, which is um, separate, but, but connected. And so the ego plays a, an important role in this journey. And, you know, you, you hear Ryan uh, Holiday, who I respect a lot, and I think he's got a lot of amazing insights to share, but he talks about ego as the enemy. And I know that's not a bald-faced statement. There's a lot of nuance behind it, but not taken in context. It's like, well, no, I, I don't think the ego is the enemy. The ego is an essential part of who we are. It's just replaced an overemphasis on the ego as being the driver in our lives as opposed to, I don't know, eros or um, the somatic or the body or however you want to describe it. So I'd love for you to to unpack that statement you made about the ego wants to keep you away. Well, because the remember what I said, the masculine is um, the protector of the heart. So the ego is masculine. So all it wants to do is keep you safe. That's why it's not the enemy. It's not the enemy because it's right. just trying to keep you safe in the way that it knows how to keep you safe. So when yeah. I say that it's trying to keep you from what you want is that's the dance. The, the, the reason why so many human beings struggle in life, whether it be financially, emotionally, in their relationships, um, is because everything they've ever wanted in life is just on the other side of fear. And the ego stops you from right. dealing with that fear. And you know this through ceremony, like when you can learn to confront and face that fear and go head on with it, it's like, boom, everything opens up for you, you know? So, yeah. 
So yeah, so that's, the ego doesn't want you to go through that fear because it wants to keep you safe. So that's why the ego is not the enemy. It's it's actually your friend. Yeah. You know, the thing is, you have to learn in the journey of life how to work through its desire to want to try to keep you safe and tell it that you're the one, your highest self is the one that's that's in control and that's driving the ship. How did you start to explore these conversations? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a far cry from what you talk about in church. And, and I know you had a falling out with a lot of the themes that were shared in church. Did this come through ayahuasca or, or take us through the journey that led you down this path? It started with ayahuasca. And I just remember always wanting the truth. I just remember right. always asking, like, how does life work? Tell me the truth. Who is God? Who is Jesus? How, how does this because nothing that the church told me made sense, right? It, yep. it made sense to that version of me, right? But what people don't realize is that the church is like a, it's like a, this is all you see, right? Say this prayer or right. else you're going to go to hell, right? And then it's like something in life, if this is your life's, this is your lifetime to figure this out. If not, you'll die and you won't figure this out. But the truth is, right. you remove that and everything opens up. Everything opens up, right? And so when I say everything is, I mean your spiritual giftings. And one of my spiritual giftings is the, the ability to see past what the human mind can see and then be able to articulate it and teach it to help people on their journey of healing and discovering their own selves. That's, that's, that's literally my life. That's what I do, you know? Right. So how did it start? Uh, it started I mean, with the deep desire to know the truth, which is very scary, right. by the way. Very scary. Talk about a red pill. <laughs> it's very scary because it, it makes you go. I remember one time there were points. I remember one time I was driving. I had just done ayahuasca, you know, the day before we were great, but the medicine is still sitting in you. And I saw the truth behind like, and I mean, I'm just going to say what happened, but I saw the truth behind like um, black people and slavery. And how African Americans were quite honestly the the most powerful race, and how they're physically the strongest, you know, probably the most beautiful, and how you know um, the people that were lighter colored way back thousands of years ago figured that out, figured out if we don't fix this really, really quick, this is going to become an issue. That's where slavery all came from. I, I'm I'm telling you, in that moment when Source gave me that, the way it's giving me so many other messages. I thought I was going to die because you have to realize it's like you advance to like another, another consciousness is what happens. So I remember, I remember literally telling everybody, stop the car, stop the car. Cause I was having like a little, cause it was like, it's like you're being shown truths that it's like your mind has a hard time comprehending basically. Um, yep. So yeah, man, there's been a lot. That's why I tell you when I say life is now the journey or the medicine is because every day I'm learning something new now, you know, I'll, g I'll give you another example. If I can just today, I went sure, to yoga and, yeah, and my, and my shoulder's been bothering me. My shoulder's been bothering me. And I had this wonderful uh, yoga teacher that I think calling her a yoga teacher is a disservice. Her name is Danica Kennedy. And um, she's like a, she helps you reconnect with your body. So I'm doing yoga and I'm like all out of whack and I'm like down and out. And she's like, let's just hang from the bar. 
So, you know, you know how to do a pull-up, right? Everybody knows how to do a pull-up. She goes, okay, so you see how you grip it this way? Let's grip it this way. And I'm up there hanging and I'm watching my arms and my ego and my mind keep my shoulders up here. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh, like just trust yourself. Let go of the shoulders. I didn't realize that my entire life I had taught my body to hang like this instead of fully allowing myself to extend, which which kept my lats in constant contraction, which pulled my shoulder, which was pulling my chest, which was pulling my bicep. And the journey of holding that and, and breathing to allow oxygen to open this up. Brother, like after 40 seconds, three rounds of that, I started tripping. I literally, I, I was... <sighs> I was on the ground shaking, laughing hysterically, because what we don't realize is that all of this is trapped in our bodies. Like our bodies store all of this energy. And so I had a full on close to DMT release this morning, just from that, just from hanging and dancing with the dance of my body saying, no, no, I'm afraid, but you going, no, but you have to. And and you don't learn that dance other than with the medicine, you know, the medicine teaches you that yeah. dance. Yeah. When you talk about the the scariest thing in life for for me, it was uh, my my first experiences with five methoxy DMT, five meo DMT. For anyone listening, often known as the toad or the toad medicine, that shit is terrifying. At least it was for me. It was the scariest goddamn experience of my life, and um, you know, it reminds me um, of the book uh, "The Immortality Key." by uh robert Muir rescue mm-hmm. um you know and he talks about how in ancient greece they had the saying that if you die before you die then you don't die when you die and uh 5-meo dmt as near as i can tell it is the closest you can get to experiencing death without actually experiencing death and my ego is not at all prepared for it and so uh it's actually in the documentary but i am a hot flaming mess like i am rolling and screaming and spitting and it is not attractive and i am the poster boy for probably everybody who doesn't want to do 5-meo dmt they probably want to point at my experience and say that's why i don't want to do that um but it is eye-opening and and when you learn how to tap into those experiences for me uh, breath work is a great way to do it. And breath work with a little bit of cannabis actually is a great way that can tap you right back into those moments of, of complete, you know, um, disconnection from, from the body and then seeing the world through a whole other lens. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So you sold your real estate business a few years ago. Um, and did you know that you want to start the and, and I know the words don't sit well with you, but the coaching and, and, and spiritual, I'll call it a business. I suspect you think of it something yeah. much more than that, but uh, with lack of perfect words, and we'll, we'll use that for now. Um, take, take us through that kind of process of, of deciding that that was your path, I guess. I'm going to call it professional, but again, I, I recognize that's probably an inadequate term, but that's, that's how you kind of make a living these days, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it started off as real estate coaching and, um, okay. because I was a real estate agent, I was a real estate broker, part of me back then. And then as my journey started to evolve, what I wanted to teach and share with people and how I wanted to help them started to evolve as well. And I remember like feeling very uncomfortable speaking about real estate because it was literally just the 
tip of the iceberg and it's meaningless when it comes to like, you know, who you are. Right. And I wanted to start speaking about deeper topics and, um, and so it it just kind of evolved from there. Okay. And, 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 and take us through, you know, what is, what is, what is this work now? Uh, I, I know there's a few levels to it, you know, the tribe and all that kind of stuff, but, but talk us through all the pieces of, of the work you do now. Yeah. So um, essentially what we are committed to doing is helping human beings return to their hearts. That, that same journey that I went on, I thought to myself, well, what if we could help everybody, you know, experience this. So we created our event Awaken. And um, it's a it's a three day retreat, and it um, helps people to deal with their mother and father wounds, with any sexual trauma that they've experienced in their life. Uh, it brings immense healing, immense healing, um, and you know I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it because it, it helps people to begin the process of healing and self actualization without any medicine. We've curated a powerful three days that <clears throat> that really helps people to do that. So yeah, that's what we do. Cool. And and now I'm gonna kind of flip it back on you, which is you heard a little bit about my story uh, about six months ago, failed trip, the thing that I felt like I was born to do, kind of came to an end. Uh, and I assume that through your work, you've helped people navigate similar kind of situations. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you think I should be approaching it. Because one of the things I've certainly struggled with is trying to reorient to a new purpose. Um, Well, maybe it's perfect that it doesn't exist anymore, you know? And and I think maybe it feels like the lesson is like an attachment. We have to remain in flow. We have to remain in flow, you know? Um, This is what gets people hurt when it comes to relationships, when it comes to like losing a job. Is we 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 put our identity into that thing versus staying in flow and seeing how perfect it was, the lessons that you learned while you did it, and the people that you met while you did it, and the potential doors that it had to close in your life in order to allow space for something new to come up. And and I'd say once you get to that healthy space where instead of looking at it from like a the lens of disappointment, for example, right? Look at it from gratefulness. Look, look, look at it from gratefulness and, and, and thank it for being a part of your life. And then just tell yourself, tell the universe, tell source that you are open to something new uh, and that you're open to going on the journey of discovering what that thing is and go on that journey, bro. That's it. Oh, that that last piece of advice is actually something I haven't heard before, which is like telling the world that you're ready for something new that actually lands quite a bit. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of advice and focus on, you know, unpacking, feeling the emotions, feeling the heartbreak, the hurt, the anger, whatever, um, you know, and, and at a certain point you have to decide that you're done with it. Cause you can keep unpacking that forever, but no one's actually said now turn to face forward and, and invite something else. So that, that's great advice. I appreciate that. Yeah, and really listen to that. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I, I'm pretty blessed in that. That's where the mix between like business and spirituality like helps me. Is that you? You know, in business, you can't be attached to 
to even an employee. I, I just had, um, gosh, my, my, my longest tenured employee, uh, borderline. She was more than my employee. She, she just, uh, resigned, uh, a week ago. It's perfect. It's just part of life. It's, it's, it's fine. It's, yeah. Our our energies were different. And, you know, I always see everything in the positive. So like in that, I saw like for who we were meant to become, her energy was kind of not knowingly keeping us from becoming that. But at the same time, right. for who she is meant to become, our energy and our purpose was keeping her from becoming that. That's being unattached and that's being yep. very accepting. And I think if we could step into that, it's like when things happen, it's like, sweet, what's next? You know? And uh and we can we can keep going forward. Can can I ask you uh what may be a challenging question, which is, you know, in looking through the website and, and, and the work you're doing, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on helping people achieve their financial dreams. But as you've discovered and as I've discovered, achieving those financial dreams is often a payoff not worth a lot of the effort. Don't get me wrong. Money is great. And I'm not saying we should take a vow of poverty, but we definitely over-index in the pursuit of wealth as opposed to the pursuit of happiness. Um, and I always, I always have concerns when you see that being a focus of a lot of what I'll call spiritual work that, you know, achieve your dreams, achieve the financial freedom that you always wanted. And that always seems to be right at the top. And I get it. You got to speak to people where they are, and that's probably high in the list of where they are. But how do you manage that internally? I don't. To be to be fair, you might be looking at really old copy. Um, okay. It, yeah. If I'm honest, uh, you know, there there was a part of me about a year ago that thought that's what I needed to speak to, but that just doesn't resonate as right. truth. Um, the truth is, is right. that um, finances is an outcome and it's an outward expression of who we are. But I like to focus on the three energies of human mastery, which this I will be pretty straightforward with. There are energies of mastery, and one of them is money. You, you have to learn to master this thing that we have with money, right? Because when you, okay. when you really look at it, it's learning to master yourself and all of your limiting thoughts, feelings, and emotions, right? The second one is relationships. Right. Right, and your interaction, particularly your your sexual interaction with with other human beings, and and you want to learn to master that energy, right? Uh, and the third one is um, with food. You want to learn to master that relationship that you have with food. Um, and so, I think that that's the ultimate life is when you get to a space where you are the highest version of yourself. Um, and whether that be, yeah, financially, physically, emotionally, in your relationship, and you go through the journey of unraveling all of the parts of you that are afraid of being your highest version of yourself, I think that's 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 our deepest fear, quite frankly. Our deepest fear is no longer having the excuse and no longer having the story and 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 no longer having a perpetual state of um, struggle and living in so much beautiful flow and abundance in every area of our lives that we wouldn't know what to do with our minds anymore. Like that, that's our deepest fear. And that's what we help people do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't remember who said it, uh, but our deepest fear is in the realization that we're much more powerful than we can ever imagine. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what you're speaking to. That's it, man. That's it. Yeah. How does, and this may be an academic question, but how does mastery and flow go hand in hand? Because in many ways, mastery seems like the opposite of flow on a high level. And I think there's a, a reconciliation there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Flow is the outcome of mastery. Okay. Flow, Can flow, you expand on that? Yeah. Your life being in flow is, is the outcome of personal mastery. You know, um, you being so in touch and so aligned with your truth and your power, that life just flows. Um, because the opposite of that is life is struggle. And when life is a struggle, it, it really is a struggle because we have struggle within. So when we master our lives within, right. then we master our lives without. Yeah. And then we get to live on heaven right. and earth, on, on earth, you know, and that's a very beautiful state. But when Scott Galloway was on the podcast, one of the things we talked about was his recognition and, and you had the same recognition uh, that, you know, you're very fortunate. You had lots of money, you're healthy, you know, uh, if you had kids, I mean, Scott talked about how he had healthy kids, he has a great wife, great partner, you know, everything is good. He has all the benefits that economic security provides to him. And at the end of the day, and this is something I struggle with very well, and I'm curious to know your experience with it, he's like, my mood will be determined by how successful my day was professionally, whether my interview on MSNBC was a good interview, whether that tweet was trending the way I thought. And if it doesn't, that will be the biggest determinant of my mood. Uh, and it's something I fall prey to as well, because I can look at my life and I can recognize that I'm blessed. But at the end of the day, if it's a shitty work day, that will govern uh, my mood. And I'm curious to know if you experience that. And if you don't, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, that's a sign of being out of balance with our feminine energy. That's our that's a sign of our masculine feminine being out of balance and us putting too much emphasis on our on our work. I I say this humbly and sincerely when you say that, I remember being like that, but I'm like, oh no, I I I would I would never allow like my work because then because then that means that life is outside of me you follow me that means that right. my happiness and my joy is dependent upon what happens in my work that means i'm not anchored in my spiritual truth which is my happiness is within so um i, I don't know scott but i i i, I would say um nothing could be furthest from the truth when you go deep enough within to 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 realize that so i i hope he realizes that someday cool well danny i appreciate you making the time for me today it's been a lovely conversation thank you for sharing your story and your insights with me uh, and everyone listening it's uh, it's been a real pleasure and i hope we can continue the conversation not necessarily on podcast form but uh, in person at some point i appreciate that Roman. thank you so much thank you for having me great to see you thanks everybody thanks bud